But one great reading of this is Calvin, who says that we have to think about a mystic union, he says, a mystic union between us and Jesus in Jesus' death. This is Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Join us each week as Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm your host, Natalie Owens-Pike, MDiv, Class of 2023, here at Yale Divinity School. In this episode, we have Harold Attridge, Sterling Professor of Divinity at Yale Divinity School, and John Hare, Noah Porter, Professor of Philosophical Theology at Yale Divinity School, discussing Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25, which is appointed for the second Sunday after Pentecost, year A. Here is the text. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there transgression. For this reason, the promise depends on faith in order that it may rest on grace, so that it may be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said. So shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead for he was about a hundred years old, and the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Harry, as a a Bible scholar, how do you respond to this passage in Romans 4 about Abraham's faith being counted as righteousness? And uh, what what do you see here as uh, the relationship between faith and righteousness as Paul is thinking about it in Romans 4? Right. Well, when I uh, think about Romans 4 and Paul's argument here, there are a couple of things that I uh, like to keep in mind. One is uh, the rhetorical situation that Paul finds himself in, that is telling people who are attracted to the the history and spirituality and practice of ancient Judaism, of traditional Israel, that is to be valued, and it's the foundation on which 
the movement of which he's a part is based, but it's not necessary. It's not a necessary condition for relating to um, God or relating to his instrument for salvation, that is Jesus Christ. So that's the the general rhetorical situation that he's in. Uh, The other thing that is important to keep in mind is that this is not the first time Paul has used an Abraham argument to try to make that point. That is that we don't have to get circumcised in order to be participating in the people of God in a significant way. He's made this argument before in Galatians. And in in some ways, uh, the Galatians argument is is a little sketchier and less well-developed than what we have here in Romans. Paul has given the argument some thought and expanded it. So, Basically, what we have is an argument from Scripture. He has a passage in in Genesis where Abraham believes, and God reckons uh, that belief to him as righteousness. That's what the Scripture text says. And Paul says, can we use that in some ways as an indication or a, a symbol of what has transpired with us? That is, that we've been given the option to be in relationship with God, and we can accept it or not. And that's what I mean, Paul says, by by belief. And that's what happens when we believe. God puts us in that relationship, justifies us, as it were. So that's that's what Paul is doing. He's doing a, a kind of midrashic exercise. He's uh, taking scripture and saying, there's something here that's relevant for our own situation, and we can understand our situation better if we read it through the lens of scripture. By the time he comes to, to Romans 4, just, just the superficial belief leading to justification is not quite enough. He wants to go more deeply into the Abraham story, and he says, well, let's think about what Abraham experienced. And Abraham experienced the challenge that his son was re- the death of his son was required by God. My goodness, wow, that's a very difficult thing, isn't it? Why in the world would Abraham be willing to sacrifice his son, which the text in Genesis says that he was? Ah, Abraham must have been thinking, thinking about God's promise, and God promised progeny to him through his son. Therefore, his son was going to live, and therefore he can follow God's command even to kill him because God can resurrect him. Ah, we see in Abraham a belief in resurrection, and friends in Rome— Paul is, in effect, saying, you too have a belief in resurrection. You too are related to God through Christ who is resurrected from the dead. So if you read the whole Abraham story in its fullness, you can realize that you are in a relationship with God. You are justified, even if you have a process of sanctification yet to come. You have been justified by God through that relationship based upon the resurrection of Christ. So this is a really interesting passage, I think for showing Paul using Scripture, finding in the Abraham story a model of his own understanding of how one relates to God, and then delving deeper into Scripture in order to ground that that story in a better way, in order to make his argument that, yes, we don't have to get circumcised. Yes, even Gentiles are welcome as uh, part of the people of God. So it's an interesting passage. Yes, I, I, I like thinking of the passage in terms of the story of Abraham and Isaac. But that story of Abraham and Isaac is a very difficult one <laughs> for, for an ethicist anyway. It is. I mean, if, I, if, I, uh, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I say this to my students, mm-hmm. suppose you wake up in the middle of the night and you think God is telling you to kill your roommate. Should you go ahead <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and uh, 
and kill him. But no, no, that can't be right. Uh, that's not the sort of thing that God tells people to do, you say. But then you think about Abraham. So I think you're right, and this is what the letter to the Hebrews says also, that Abraham thought that Abraham was going to come back, that Isaac was going to come back to life. And so there was still going to be progeny as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. So there's a there's a, a model for faith, faith which Paul says here, it wasn't weakened by apistia, by lack of faith. Actually, weakened there is diacrite. So it wasn't sort of split up into two. <laughs> so it's, it's not like the uh, Laodiceans who were neither warm nor hot and, and God said he's going to spew them out of his mouth. But, Paul says, Abraham was filled up to the brim, pleroforesis, brought to fullness in his belief. And we should ask, what's the place of doubt in a Christian life, in a faithful person's life? If you're faced with something really hard, like Abraham being faced with the requirement to kill his only son whom he loved, is there any place for doubt in that? Uh, Or if we're going to have faith like Abraham, does that mean we have to be full up to the brim with faith? That, I think, is a difficult question. I, I myself think there is a proper place for doubt in a Christian life, but there has to be always a ranking inside yourself are you going to put that doubt first or are you going to put your faith first? And there's a battle inside you. That's an important consideration, I think, to keep in mind. Um, faith can't be a simple thing. Uh, and especially if we take ourselves seriously and take our, our responsibility to, uh, to think rationally about our faith, we're going to have moments of doubt. I think we all do. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the struggle goes on and will result, I hope, uh, as it does for Abraham, in a positive outcome. Uh, You know, it's interesting thinking about that story of um, uh, the Akedah uh, and thinking about how it uh, got underway. It probably was not meant to pose some of these uh, profound philosophical or theological questions. It was probably simply an etiological legend. Why is it that we... uh, we have this practice of making an offering of our firstborn son rather than killing him. Well, uh, those other people down the road kill their sons. We don't. And we don't because our patriarch um, had this experience. So I think it was that kind of ideological legend that uh, began. But then, uh, once it's enshrined in Scripture, it provides this opportunity for reflecting on, on the relationship between self and God, on the relationship between faith and its grounds, etc., and an enormously long tradition has done that, both Jewish and Christian, wrestling with that text, which, as soon as you start putting it within that larger framework, creates all sorts of difficulties. But Paul, I think, is coming at it from that Jewish exegetical and Haggadic tradition and saying, what can I make of this story that helps me in this moment make my argument and understand where I am about Jews and Gentiles coming together in this this new people of God. And Abraham, as someone who believes in resurrection, provides a model for that. So I think we can see what Paul is doing at the same time as we recognize that story has all sorts of difficulties for us if we start digging into it. The rabbis, on the whole, took the, what you call the etiological reading of the, of the story, how do we get animal sacrifice? And the philosophers have tended as you say, to take this deeper. I tend to think uh, Paul here is with the philosophers. 
So he he's, he's uh, he is asking the question about how how this this story informs us about our relationship to God, our our relationship of of, of faith, and what to do when reason or the ethical common sense seems to work against faith. They seem to be in tension with each other. And there, Abraham is an example for us, somebody who puts the faith first and puts the doubts aside. Mm-hmm. And I think we're being told we should do the same thing. Yeah, I tend to see Paul a little more on the side of the rabbis than the philosophers. <laughs> the The potential is there, and that's one of the uh, the joys of Scripture that it has such potential and has stimulated so so broad a range of uh, reactions and reflections. Uh, one other um, uh, element here that probably is uh, is worth noting, and it's interesting that you mentioned the Epistle to the Hebrews because that's developed further there, uh, and that's the dead womb of Sarah. This is the same story is is picked up and uh, used in in Hebrews, but with Sarah probably chiming in and um, uh, believing as well as Paul perhaps uh, missing an opportunity to uh, emphasize gender parity or gender equality here. There is one other thing we might talk about, uh, which is at the end of this passage, Paul talks about Jesus being delivered over to death for us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and raised to life for our justification. And he seems to have in mind here that we are somehow identified with Jesus in his death. As in Second Corinthians 5, one died for all and therefore all have died. And this is something theologians have tried to understand down the centuries. But one great reading of this is Calvin, who says that we have to think about a mystic union, he says, a mystic union between us and Jesus in Jesus's death, so that we die in him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we're brought back to life in him when he is resurrected. But that might be too large a conversation for the next minute. Yeah, uh, well, a seed is sown here in Romans, and Paul picks up um, that theme a little bit later on and uh, sows the seeds for Calvin's reading when he talks about um, uh, how we're baptized into the death of Christ. And then we are called to walk in newness of life. Colossians picks up the same language, but without the sort of notion of we are called to, or we should. It's rather, we have been resurrected. So uh, there's some... Uh, identification with Christ, that's clear in Paul's notions of, of sal- salvation, his soteriology, if you will. In, an identification of Christ that's ritually uh, uh, enacted through baptism, and probably ritually enacted in other ways, too. Paul talks about the uh, the Last Supper in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, that recalls the death of Christ and, uh, until he comes again, and we participate somehow in that through that action. So I think Paul is reflecting on the experience of uh, Christian worshiping communities when he uses this kind of language. And in that experience comes that that uh, notion of identification with Christ, both in his death and his resurrection, both of which we somehow participate in in the here and now. Exactly how that identification is supposed to work, clearly the theological tradition has had a long, uh, a long history of wrestling with that. There's also wrestling with it within the New Testament. I think the Epistle to the Hebrews, which we've mentioned a time or two, knows this Pauline language and wrestles with it, and wrestles with it in terms of its uh, understanding of the covenant relationship and the promises of God to forgive, and that's how it all happens. So you have different ways of of making sense of this language that appealed to Christians from the get-go and was a part of their daily experience and their ritual experience uh, uh, in every community that they were in. 
So it remains a theological issue today. One thing that makes it harder for us than it was for Paul is that we've, I think, lost a sense of how one person could be ashamed of what another person does. (laughs) So uh, how is it that Jesus could take on our sins? And we've become, in our culture, allergic, I think, to the sharing of responsibility of that kind, to thinking that one person could become ashamed of what another person has done. But I think in, in the ancient world in general, but in Paul in particular, that notion was much more familiar Mm-hmm. that shame could be shared in that sort of way. Yeah, a lot of my colleagues like to talk about the honor-shame culture that was wrapped around all of these texts and these people that we're talking about. And yes, Christ took on our shame. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. Chapter, Verse, and Season is a production of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. It's produced by creator and managing editor Joel Baden, executive producer Helena Martin, Production Manager, Kelly Morrissey. Associate Producer, Aidan Stoddart. And I'm your host, Natalie Owens-Pike. Mixing on today's episode and our theme music are by Calvin Linderman. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season. Season.